Uh, so Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be there. We're going to be in a few different places. If you want to show off your Bible skills, you can, but I am going to go quickly to those different places. So just follow along. I'm just going to read you a few quotes, but Philippians chapter 4 is going to be the main place where we camp out. Um, if you're not familiar with Advent, I know I explained it a little bit, but Advent is part of a calendar, the church calendar that the church uh, has used historically, not typically our stream of the church, but in other traditions. Uh, and it helps us mark time in a way really that walks in the life of Jesus. That's kind of the cycle you go through every year. Uh, there's a piece of that liturgical tradition called the Revised Common Lectionary. I would invite you to Google that and find it, and you'll have readings every day of the week. Uh, Bible reading plans are not some new invention. They've been around for a long, long, long time. Uh, the Revised Common Lectionary, we typically use some portion of it here. Uh, in those traditions, if you read all the readings every Sunday from the lectionary, you will have read the entire Bible together every three years, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, and so that's part of where this tradition of Advent comes from. The word Advent just means waiting or coming. Uh, and so it's a season of preparation. And I want to just invite, if you're like, that's kind of weird, why would you have a calendar like that? Well, I just want to invite you to think about the reality that you mark your life in cycles of time, just like everybody else who's ever lived does. Uh, we all do it. Uh, and so you think about it, you mark time by things like birthdays and anniversaries and seasons of the year. Some of you are wearing them in here, but football season, right? Baseball season. We mark time uh, by that. If you get around me this time of year, I probably will know how many days until pitchers and catchers report for spring training, uh, right? That's too far. Um, but, <laughs> but we mark time by those uh, seasons and cycles of uh, time going on. And so the church calendar is just a way for us to do that uh, and mark time by the life of Jesus. And it's intended really to help you keep him as the center of your life, as the hub by which your life revolves around. And so there's typically five major seasons in the church calendar, and we are, as we said, in week three of Advent. This is traditionally known as Gaudet or Joy Sunday. Uh, and so our expectation is getting closer and closer. And the reason the third Sunday of Advent is Joy, uh, the other three weeks can kind of move around. Love, Joy, and Peace, those kind of, or Love, Hope, and Peace, those kind of move around, but Joy is always the third. And, and here's the word picture I like to use. Uh, if you have little kids around or you remember when your kids were little uh, or you've seen any movie ever uh, about Christmas, there's always some kind of scene of a little kid looking out a window waiting for somebody to come, Santa, their grandpa, their grandma, their aunt, whoever it is. And they're craning their neck right to, to the empty road waiting for the headlights to come around the corner. And those first two weeks of Advent are like that. We're looking, we're waiting, we're expecting but week three of Advent is when the car turns the corner. We see the headlights, and little kids get real excited, right? Like, ah, oh, they're here, but they're not actually here yet, but you can see that it's very soon. That's week three of Advent. So that's where we are. We're filled with expectant joy because the arrival of Jesus, both historically as the Jewish people waited for the Messiah to come, and historically for us as we look to the second Advent, the second coming of Jesus, Week three reminds us that we live with expectant joy because arrival is getting close. Now, we read from the prophet Isaiah earlier when the candles were lit, and in Isaiah 35, we get a very poetic picture of what happens when God does what he does, which is show up to save. Uh, and so that's what we're waiting for during Advent. If you want to flip to Isaiah 35, you can, but keep your finger in Philippians 4 and just know I'm not going to wait for you, so... 
That's your warning, okay? In verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 35, here's some promises we see, and we'll get to how this ties into Philippians in a little bit, but here's some promises we see about what happens when God shows up, in, particularly in verses 3 and 4. This is what it says. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, any of us in here that's talking to you, right? Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. And here's the part I really want you to hear. He will come and save you, right? So one of the most important and the poignant ways that we live out our faith in God is by simple encouragement to one another. There are some of us in this room right now who are really gifted at this. Uh, they, they encourage you when you talk to them. We can remind one another that God is coming and that he will make all things right, uh, that he will bring justice. Most importantly, though, that he will save sinners like you and me. Um, and, and so again, it's the question, how many of us can relate to this poetic language of feeling like we have weak knees and feeble hands sometimes, right? This church is multi-generational. There is uh, two groups of people in our congregation who might be able to really relate to having feeble hands and weak knees, the very young and the very old, right? But all of us can relate to having the feeling of feeling weak. I can definitely relate to knowing the feeling of an anxious heart. I know that for some of us in this room, we really know what a sad or anxious heart is like this time of year. It's extra difficult for us. Uh, for some of us, it's other times of the year. And so uh, some of us, it's this time of the year. And that's why, again, to, to just shameless plug, we're having the blue Christmas service tomorrow night. That's what that's for, just to give you space to come and name that loss, name that reality. And so I'd love to see you there if that's you, just an invitation. There's never guilt or pressure for those kind of things. But I want to invite you to listen to the last sentence of verse 4 again that I read to you from Isaiah. He will come and save you. And I love that it doesn't say that he, maybe he'll show up and save you. Now, this is a promise spoken to God's people. It says that he will come and save you. But I want you to now listen to how that chapter in Isaiah ends. And the ransomed of the Lord, and if you know and love Jesus, that's you, right? You're the ransomed of the Lord. You shall return and come to Zion with singing Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, the ESV translation, which I was reading from there, those blue Bibles around you, those are ESV, great translation. But in this text, the NIV, the New International Version, actually gives us a better picture of what the original language is trying to say uh, in the last part of that verse, instead of saying they will obtain gladness and joy, the NIV renders that line, gladness and joy will overtake them. And I like that because that's probably much closer to the intent of the author, Isaiah. And honestly, that reason for that is because that's how our human experience is with joy, right? You don't go out and grab joy. Joy overtakes you. That's like how it feels. That's how we experience it. Joy just kind of bubbles up and bursts onto the scene. And I wonder if you've ever experienced that, right? If you've ever experienced joy just overtake you. Um, one of the pictures we get to view pretty often as a culture, and the reason why it's so compelling is sports, right? At the end of seasons in sports, there's a championship, and what happens 
to these full-grown men, full-grown women when they win a championship. They act like children, right? I remember there was an ad for the NHL, uh, the hockey playoffs, best playoffs in sports, by the way. But there was an uh, ad for the playoffs that was talking about the prize they win, the Stanley Cup. And it was basically the tagline was, the cup will make men act like boys. And it showed the picture of these men winning the cup. They throw their gloves everywhere. They don't care what's happening. They're just irresponsibly joyful, right? And so that's what Isaiah is talking about here. On that day at the second advent of Jesus that we look forward to, his people, you and I, if you know and love him, are gonna be so overwhelmed by his goodness and his blessings and the sheer reality that what he said to be true is true, that we will literally have joy overtake us. It will chase us down, right? But not only that, it says that all our sorrow all our sighing, that's the, that's the word used there. And the word there is like a sound. It's not really like a word, it's like a sound that we make. All of that sound that you make when you're anxious, when you're sad, when you're tired, all of that will flee away. I love that idea of our sorrows being like sighing, right? Some of us feel like all we ever do is sigh. Right, maybe you've had a season like that. All you can do is kind of just, you know, and just try to keep it together. And what he's saying is that in that day, all of that will be banished and will be, over, will be taken over by joy. And so, right, you read that and you, you think, I don't know about anybody else, but I need that. I want that. I want the kind of joy where troubles and anxiety run away from me. But it seems like my ability to be joyful is always clouded, right? Pun intended with the weather today. It's always clouded by the troubles of this life. And I seem to very often forget that God is coming to save and that I can rest in joyful expectation in that. And so in the book of Philippians, we get this little section in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, where we see an exhortation. Right? It's a, a call to live this way, to live in the kind of joyfulness we saw in Isaiah. But then, thankfully, what we also get is some instruction on what to do when we're not living in joy, which we need because it's a lot of the time in my life anyway, right? Let's look at Philippians 4. Now, you may know this text in Philippians 4. Uh, I don't know if I've embarrassed myself up front with this before, but I, know, I was taught a little song when I was a kid, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Do the hands. Come on. You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't do the clap? Oh, well, there's the embarrassment. All right. I'm alone. I'm alone in my conservative evangelical upbringing. Thanks, Mom, if you're watching. All right? So this text in Philippians 4 is one of the most famous sections in the Bible. Um, maybe you've heard it before. You've seen it on a shirt, a bumper sticker, a coffee cup, whatever. Let's look at Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, this is, if you go back and read Philippians, the third time that we read this command to rejoice in this book from the Apostle Paul. First, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 18, 
Paul tells the readers that they should be glad and rejoice with him. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then, of course, here in 4.4, he tells them to rejoice. And he says, and again, I say rejoice. Now, the, the point that Paul is trying to communicate uh, is, is the force of the joy that he is talking about. He wants the Christians in the city of Philippi or the Philippian church to understand that joy is not quite exactly what we think of when we think of happiness, right? It's not less than happiness, but it's something more than that. And it's instead more like a defiant nevertheless. That's, I think, a helpful way to think about joy. It's a defiant nevertheless in the face of a thankless, complaining world, right? You watched anything online or TV there's a lot of complaining happening, right? All the talking voices are complaining about something. And as Christians, we come with our defiant joy and say, yeah, that may be true, but nevertheless, God is coming to save and I'm joyful. Now understand, Paul is not writing from a nice place. He's not writing from a five-star hotel. He is imprisoned as he writes this letter. So that's important context to understand when he's telling you, hey, be joyful as he's locked up in a Roman prison, awaiting his imminent death at the hands of state-sponsored, basically, terrorism. That's what's happening here, right? So we can't write off Paul's instructions to be full of joy and be like, well, he doesn't know what I'm dealing with. He doesn't, but you don't know what he's dealing with, right? You're not in that situation that he's in writing this. He's in a tough spot, and yet this is still what he's writing to the church and to us. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord when always... In my translation, semicolon, again I will say, rejoice. So what is Paul doing here? This is like a rhetorical tool. He's doing that thing you do when you want to answer a question before it gets asked, right? He can see the question coming before it gets there. Maybe you've been in a conversation. You know that what you're about to tell the person is going to be hard for them to hear. They're not going to like it. Uh, or maybe they'll just have a difficult time believing it. And how do you start that sentence? With some kind of phrase like, right, you, now this may be hard to hear, or now you may not believe this, but, and you're sort of answering the question before they ask it. And that's what Paul's doing here when he repeats himself. He's kind of going, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but you really heard me say what you just read me say, rejoice in the Lord always. The other thing to notice that I wish sometimes wasn't true, is the lack of loopholes in Paul's saying, right? What does he say? Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he makes sure, again I say, rejoice. So he wants to make sure that the Philippian church and that you and I, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understand that rejoicing in the Lord is not like this optional thing we do from time to time when we feel like it. It isn't something we're supposed to be sort of dabbling in. You ever talk to musicians and you're like, hey, do you play this instrument? And they're like, oh, I kind of dabble in it, right? That means they don't play that instrument and they're bad at it, but they kind of wish they did, right? If you ask me if I play piano, I'm like, well, I tinker, right? I don't have a clue what's going on on piano. That's not an option with joy. We're not supposed to be tinkerers of joy, right? That's not our thing. Rejoicing in the Lord is meant to be a constant state of our heart. And, and again, I want to just say this. That doesn't mean you're always going to be happy, clappy, fake people. That's not what this is getting at. 
In his commentary on the book of Philippians, um, Marcus Bachmuel said this about joy. Joy is a basic and constant orientation of the Christian life, the fruit and evidence of a relationship with the Lord. And I don't know if you've been around somebody, and, and the times I've been around this is when there's a person who has been walking with the Lord for a long time, and they are in a moment of suffering, is when I've seen joy like this. And, and, and the joy surpasses your understanding, right? Or the peace that they experience from the joy surpasses your understanding. You think to yourself, like, how in the world are you happy right now? We're in a hospital room. You're about to pass. And somehow you're just filled with not happiness, but you're, you're at peace. You're filled with joy. What's going on there? And this is a person who has practiced what Paul is calling us to. And so this rejoicing in the Lord is something that comes from what God has done in the past. It's part of what he is doing now in your life and also what he will do in the future. And so again, this is why knowing and meditating on the scriptures is vital to your spiritual life, right? It's not an option. That daily time in God's word, that the Bible and Jesus assumes that you're making space for, right? It's not a guilt thing. It's just an assumption that prayer and scriptures is just part of following God and being one of his people. This is why it's so important, because in the scriptures, we are reminded and taught about who God is and what he has done in the past. So often in the Old Testament, what's the reminder to the nation of Israel? This is what God has done. The God who brought you out of slavery, the God who did this and the God who did that, trust in him now. And it's the same for us. So you learn to, to know who he is. And in that, you learn to hear his voice, right? Jesus would say, my sheep know my voice. Well, how do you know the voice of our shepherd Jesus? You read his word that he has given to us. And so you learn to hear his voice in your life now. You learn to see what he's doing. And so you can know that his promises about the future are promises that will come true that are coming for you, right? The scriptures don't lie to us that in this life, there's going to be heartache, loss, pain, sickness, death. Those are just the realities of living in a world broken by sin. But there's an even deeper reality. There is the reality that God in Jesus has been reconciling, drawing people back into relationship to himself through faith in Jesus. So how are we able to rejoice in any circumstance? Well, here is an example, a reminder from Psalm 40 that David, the psalmist here, says. He says, God drew me up from the pit of destruction. Out of the miry bog, he set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And so you and I, we need to know that in our heart of hearts, right? I would encourage you to memorize that passage, read that passage, write that down. Hide it in your heart so that when life gets hard, the joy of the Lord can be your strength because Jesus has saved us. That's the reality that we believe in. If you're new here and you're like, what's the church all about? That's the thing. Christ, by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, has saved the people for himself. And so because that's true, we can say what the apostle Peter has said in 1 Peter. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You ever thought about that? 
your joy in the Lord that you just can't like put words in. For me, this happens most often in the car with a worship song that just hits the right spot in the right moment. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Some of you are like, yeah, I get it. Some of you are like, it's books. It's the script. Whatever it is, when that joy hits that's inexpressible, there's glory in it. That's amazing. And he says, obtaining the outcome of your faith. What's the outcome of our faith in Jesus? The salvation of your soul. So not only can we rejoice because Jesus has saved us, but we can also take Paul up on this exhortation to rejoice always. We can also do that in all the other things that we forget about God, that God has provided for us, right? Make a list. Did you wake up in a warm, comfortable bed today? I did. Rejoice. Did I have something to eat this morning? Overnight oats with blueberries and peanut butter? Amazing. Rejoice. Huh? Oh. Do you have anyone in your life who loves you? Anyone at all? Rejoice. And, and the list could go on, right? All of these are provisions of God that are worth rejoicing in. We should be the most joy-filled people around. Why? Because the scales have been removed from our spiritual eyes and we can see things for what they really are. They're blessings from the Lord we can rejoice in. And we know who the source of all the good things in life is. And on top of that, like I want you to just get this. This is why we use candles as a symbol at Advent. All of the good things in your life that come from God are just a tiny shadow of what's coming for you. They're like barely a foretaste. The most beautiful, loving, amazing thing you could ever experience in this life is nothing compared to what God has for us in his kingdom. And so if that's true, if that's coming for us at the return of Jesus, we can be a joy-filled people. We can rejoice in the Lord always. Now, Paul then moves on and gives us another command or exhortation there, right? At the beginning of this section of Philippians 4, and it says this in verse 5. Look at it if you have it open. It says, now rejoice in the Lord always, right? And if you thought I didn't say that, again, I say rejoice. And then he goes on to say this, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Okay. So this introduces a relational aspect to Paul's first statement to rejoice always. The word that's translated reasonableness in the ESV has been translated a number of different ways over the years into English. And in the 1525 Tyndale translation, that word is translated as softness. And I think that's a great way to translate it. Probably the best way to translate that phrase is something like, let your gentleness be known to everyone. The point that Paul is making is that when you're a person who lives in this state of joy, not necessarily happiness, but joy, your disposition towards the people around you is one of softness or gentleness, reasonableness. The flow of the way that Paul makes the argument in the text, going from the command to rejoice to the command to be gentle, tells us that the most immediate outworking of a joyful disposition is a gentle disposition. So, we under, and we understand this anecdotally from our own human experience, right? Think of the grumpiest person that you know. Don't elbow them if you're sitting next to them. Think of the grumpiest, harshest person you know. 
the person who's always hard towards other people, who can never be compassionate, right? Now, would you also be able to categorize that person as somebody who's full of joy? No, right? It just doesn't work that way. Because inward joy leaks out as gentleness or reasonableness towards other people. We live in a very polarizing day, and we have for a while now. What I like to call a how dare you culture, right? Everything you say, how dare you, right? We're ready to passionately disagree about anything and everything and and make teams. And if you're not on my team, you're on the wrong team. And we play a zero-sum game a lot. We seem to lack any kind of a gentle spirit that would be able to bear with other people's differences of opinions. I don't think I need to prove this to you. And as much as I hate to admit it, the reality is that too often we as Christians are just as bad about this as anybody else. We just cloak ours with spirituality and think it's cool. No, it's abusive many times, right? Oh, well, I'm just saying it like it is. I'm speaking the truth. No, you're being a jerk and you're not full of joy, right? You're not letting any kind of reasonableness, softness be known to anyone. Is it possible that we are being discipled by our culture of dishonor and harshness more than we are being discipled by Jesus and his spirit of gentleness? Is it possible that we are being discipled by the very culture that we are called to reach? That can happen. You think, I want to fit in with this culture so that they'll hear me, and you end up being discipled into that way of being, and you're not different anymore. Is it possible that our normal in terms of how we relate to others and the way that we treat them is not the normal of the kingdom of heaven, but instead it's the normal of the kingdom of earthly empires, right? How did Jesus offer himself to his followers? What did he say? How did he self-describe? He said, come to me, I am gentle and lowly of heart, lowly of spirit. Maybe you didn't know this. That's the only way Jesus ever described himself. He said, I'm gentle and lowly of spirit. Now, he was strong. Did Jesus speak truth to power? Absolutely he did. And if you are a church person and you're thinking of the one time that he flipped tables over in the temple, I'm just, I just want to lovingly tell you that's a bad example of that. Jesus was doing something intentional there to get himself arrested for the sake of prophecy. We could talk about that after. That's not a good argument for, well, I tell the truth, just like Jesus did when he flipped over the temples. First of all, you ain't Jesus, right? So check your spirit. He describes himself as gentle and lowly. His overall life was a life known as gentle and kind, and he was set toward joy, right? Somehow joy that led him to a cross. Let your reasonableness be known. And I think that maybe part of the reason we aren't filled with more gentleness flowing from joy is that many times we miss the little reminder that Paul gives at the end of verse 5. We love that, like, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And the little song I was talking about never talked about this part. There was no, like, bridge of let your reasonableness be known. It didn't happen. But the Greek there, it says, the Lord is at hand. Literally, it means the Lord is near. 
right? This is the anchor for the commands that Paul gives in the text. Our joy and our gentleness are rooted in, they're grounded in this reality that we believe that God is close. He's, he, he's, all, he's he almost back. He's almost here. He's with us. He is at hand. The nearness of God gives us reason to rejoice, which leads us to be a gentle, joyful, reasonableness-filled people. Does this mean that God is close to us or does it mean that he's coming soon? Yes, right? Paul probably had both of these realities in his mind when he wrote this. The Lord is constantly with his people. We're filled with his spirit. We're reminded of this all the time. This is part of why we take communion every week. We're reminded God is close. He's at hand. He's near. We come to the table every week. We want to be reminded of that, but we also remember that he's coming soon. His return is imminent. So this imminent return is what causes joy to sort of be bubbling under the surface of our souls. We can see his headlights breaking over the horizon, and we are excitedly, joyfully waiting at the window for him to get here. Now, at the beginning of verse 6, we see Paul give an instruction not to worry which is pretty hard to follow a lot of times. And he gives us an exhortation or even a command of what to do instead. Look at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Man, if you ever talk to someone and they're like, well, I follow all of God's rules. You're like, I bet not, even just from this. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Again, this is a time when knowing the context of when this is written can actually add some weight, some heft to the words that we actually read here. Remember, Paul is imprisoned probably in Rome. His execution at the hands of the Roman Empire is near. So don't think Paul is saying, don't worry, be happy, flippantly, right? Paul's life is in question, and yet he's instructing the Philippian Christians not to worry. Now, I want you to see this. The fact that Paul is instructing them to literally stop worrying about anything gives an implication that the Philippian Christians were worried. Why would he tell them that otherwise? Being a Christian in Philippi brought with it some trouble, poverty, hunger. They were ostracized for their faith. There was faith. There were false teachers drawing people away from the faith. There was the unfriendly Roman empire that they lived under. All of these were part of the lives of these Christians. And still, what does Paul tell them? Hey, don't worry about anything. God is near. He's simply commanding them in the same way that Jesus himself taught. This is an example of what we see over and over and over in the New Testament where we're told to teach others what we have been taught. Matthew 6, Jesus teaches that worry is actually a very pagan trait. Pagan meaning not negative, but just those who are not Christians, right? That's what that word means. It's the trait of someone who does not yet know Jesus, Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Rhetorical question. The answer is yes. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
Rhetorical question, answer is, oh, yes. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Anxiety and worry is foolish. It, you, it doesn't do anything for you, right? Jesus is saying, don't you get it? God, our Father, takes care of the birds. Don't you know how much more valuable than birds you are? And he cares about the birds, he knows what's best. He will take care of you. Paul is simply echoing the teachings that Jesus gave in our text in Philippians. He is simply exhorting the Philippians to believe and trust in the same things as any other Christian at any other time. Like, don't read your Bible and think, well, these commands, they really don't apply to me because they don't live in the same time. No, these commands in Philippians are commands for us as well. We should not be a people marked by anxiety about tomorrow and marked by worry. Remember Jesus himself, what did he say? You can gain nothing from worry. Not one hour can be added to your span of life. And so instead, what should we do? Well, Paul goes on at the end of this verse to give us instruction on what to do instead of worrying. Hey, you want to take 20 minutes to be worried? Instead of that, take those 20 minutes and pray. That's what Paul says. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Any of you ever see that app on your phone pop up, faith, uh, like screen time, where it shows you like how bad you are at managing your time, basically? Yeah, only me? Okay. So I get that alert every week, and I'm like, geez, I have got to get off this phone. I would love for there to be an app like that for anxiety. Right? Where I could just be like, wow, I wasted 20 hours this week worrying about stuff that I can't control. Wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be helpful? Christian prayers, listen to what he says. In everything by prayer and supplication with what? Thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Tell God what you need. Truly Christian prayers, though, they ooze with thankfulness. We realize that everything we have has come to us by the hand of God. Of course, most importantly, right, our salvation, our adoption into God's family, uh, those have come to us by the grace of God alone. So we have everything we need, and we have everything we could uh, need to be thankful for. And so Paul, in another letter to the church at Colossae, in Colossians, he says that everything we, should, we do should be draped in thanksgiving. Here's what he says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So instead of worry, the posture of our hearts should be a thankful posture that lets God in on what we're worried about. Think about that. The posture of worry is an inwardly turned posture, right? You're turning inward on yourself as if you have the solutions to the problems that you don't have solutions to. Whereas this prayer with thanksgiving at its root that's rooted in joy and thankfulness is a posture that's turned and open to God saying, here's what I need, God. I know you know, but you've invited me to tell you, here's what I need. But why would we make our requests known to God if he already knows everything, right? God already knows, God is omniscient. That's the big Bible word for all-knowing. So if God is all-knowing, meaning he knows everything that there is to know and everything that there could be to know, then certainly he knows what my needs and even my wants are, right? Yes, of course he does. So why the command here to bring all our requests to him? Well, it's not about God finding out stuff that he didn't know. It's about God wanting to be close to you. 
Paul gives us this instruction because as we bring our request to God, we get to be honest with him about where our heart is, and it's in that honesty with him that we're actually honest with ourselves, and we get to pray through what is bothering us, and in that moment of prayerfully, thankfully bringing our request to him, then we cast all our cares on him, and we get to taste the reality that he does care for us. If you refuse to bring your request to him, you won't taste the reality that he cares for you. Do you know that God cares for you? Do you know that he cares about all the little things that you think are too stupid to pray about? He cares about those things. Do you know that he cares about all the things that seem way too big for you to deal with? Oh, he cares about those and he's not too small to deal with them. God cares. Now we get to see from Paul what the result of this thankful, joyful disposition in which we pray and make our requests known to God is. Look at verse 7. And here it comes. And this is the theme for the last week of Advent. Peace, right? And the peace of God which surpasses what? All understanding. It don't make no sense. And there are people who you know that follow Jesus and they are filled with peace and you're like, this doesn't make any sense at all to me. I don't know how in the world you're so at peace right now. And this is what it says. The peace of God will guard your hearts and guard your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, the first part of this verse tells us that this kind of peace is not the kind of peace that's superficial. This is the kind of peace that can't be taken away with that one phone call, right? Because your peace can be taken away pretty quick with a phone call. Diagnosis news about your job, news about a family member, peace gone. But not this kind of peace. That kind of peace is simply, as we talked about, I think last week, it's just a lack of conflict. But Paul says that this is the peace of God. So what does he mean? What is the peace of God? Well, I would argue with you that this is the kind of peace Jesus talked about in the Gospel of John. Listen to what he says. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled and let them not be afraid. This is the peace that comes from knowing and trusting in Jesus' work on our behalf ultimately. This is the peace that transcends all the rational reasons why we might have to not be joyful and peaceful. And yet, this is the promise to us. And I want you to notice that nowhere in this text is that peace that flows from this joyful disposition dependent on whether or not the requests you made to God are granted, right? God is not promising you that you will get everything you want. Thank God that he doesn't do that because I have wanted some dumb stuff in the past, right? That is not the promise. The promise is that you will get what you need and what you need is him. That's what you get. What you need is his peace that surpasses understanding. This is why Paul says that this will guard your hearts. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what's going on in life, God will guard your heart with his boundless peace if you will just bring your request to him and remember with thanksgiving all that he has done for you. So as we think about joy at this time of year, we think about the excitement of being that much closer to Christmas, and I am excited about it. I'm, I like Christmas. Every year that goes by, I'm more and more excited about Christmas. Listen, I joined the Put Your Decorations Up in November 1st Club this year. All right? Got to me. All right? 
but I still got a real tree. We must be a community, though, of faith who is known for our thankful, joyful hearts. If what we're known for is that we're combative, that's not it. That's not what we want to be known for. We want to be known for thankful, joy-filled hearts which create in us a reasonableness, a gentleness as we deal with those around us. It doesn't mean we don't stand for what's right. Of course we do, but we do it with reasonableness or gentleness. God isn't saying that we don't have needs, but he's saying that if we will learn to pursue a joyful, thankful disposition and trust him with our needs, that his peace will pour over our lives in such a way that our hearts are guarded against the temptation to think the original temptation, that God is actually not as good as he says he is, that he doesn't care about us, and that there's something else greater for us out there than him. That's the temptation from the garden. Did God really say? And that's the temptation for us. Think about what we could become as Christians and what our church could become if joy is what we are known for as a people, right? Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for uh, this week. Thank you for uh, all that you've given us. Even as we come to gather in this room. We thank you for the people that are here. We thank you for the people that we know want to be here, but for some reason are not able to be here today. We thank you for the kids that bring so much energy and a little bit of chaos into our life as a church family. We thank you for the reality that we have um, a family here that we've been adopted in. And so, Father, as we're thankful, we ask that you would guard our hearts and that we would be a, a joy-filled, peaceful people who let our reasonableness be known to everyone we interact with. Lord, we ask you to bless the rest of our morning together. And uh, as we go out from here, that we would be a people who share joy everywhere we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.